0: This is the current federal tax developments for the week of March the 13th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Capital Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week from here in Phoenix, we're gonna talk to you about a couple of big court cases that came down this week, one by the U.S. Supreme Court, one by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, looking back at a decision that had been made by a panel back a little less than a year ago, which was reversed with an inbox rehearing. We'll talk about that as well. As well as look at a couple of things from the IRS that came out this week. So effectively, we're going to look at first, we're going to talk about the IRS and the Office of Professional Responsibility separately issue warnings about the Employee Retention Tax Credit, specifically addressing what I think a lot of us have run into, which are some very, very aggressive promotions being directed at clients. And the IRS is both sending a warning out to the clients about these promotions, but also the Office of Professional Responsibility is sending out warnings to the practitioners regarding their responsibilities if they somehow get involved in this, if they're either actually doing ERC consulting or they're kind of drafted by the outside consultant to do things like prepare the claim for refund. So we'll discuss a little bit about that. We're also going to discuss about the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reverses the Seaview Holding LLC decision after the in-bank hearing, finding that the partnership return that was not forwarded to Ogden by an IRS either IRS employee that received it was not actually ever filed. Thus, the statute of limitations was still open for assessing the for basically assessing the deficiency in question. And, we you know, we talked a little bit about that when it came out back in May of last year, talked about this decision, which was somewhat interesting and certainly suggested a wildly taxpayer favorable view, at least if you read it literally, uh, Unfortunately for taxpayers, we're now going back to a much less taxpayer-friendly view. And we'll talk about both why the original decision came down the way it did, and also why this decision came down this way. Suffice it to say, the result of the case is not one I think is gonna leave anybody very satisfied, but I also understand why the court felt they couldn't let the original decision stand as it was. And finally, we're going to talk about an S corporation accidentally ended its status as an S corporation by revising the LLC operating agreement. We'll talk a bit about the dangers of using an LLC as the basis for your S corporation. If you don't have people involved with the documents, who understand the one class of stock rule for S-corporations, and specifically how that works if you're using a limited liability company as your basis, because as you're probably aware, it doesn't technically have stock, but we still gotta do a pretend calculation as if it did. And that is where we got in big trouble in this private letter ruling and why they had to go pay for the ruling at the end of the day. So let's start with this IRS warning on the Employee Retention Tax Credit. And this is the uh, on the IRS news release, IR 2023-40, issued on March 7th, entitled, The IRS Issues a Renewed Warning on Employee Retention Credit Claims. False Claims Generate Compliance Risk for People and Businesses Claiming the Credit Improperly. And this particular warning is a repeat of what they told us going back in October of last year. So you may remember in October 19th, they had a general warning about the ERC issues and how taxpayers need to be very, very, very careful about uh, you know, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is, is the quick test they've got on it. Um, it doesn't matter, in the interim, uh, promoters have continued to approach people. In fact, these days, I can't get on Twitter without, being, without finding the latest push for an ERC ad which I find interesting, you know, they're pushing them at me, but th- that's okay. You know, they, they do it. And uh, a couple of other people who, who are involved in tax, either as authors or involved in CPE, have also noted they're seeing that ad all the time as well. Uh, suffice it to say, there's still a lot of promotion going on. And some of these promotions are over the top, well over the top. And so the IRS continues to warn this. They also told us that the Office of Professional Responsibility, get the name out right, was working on additional guidance that would apply to tax professionals. Now, what the IRS says in here, there's a real interesting line added by then acting IRS Commissioner Doug O'Donnell. Uh, If you're not aware, last week, the Senate confirmed the new appointed IRS commissioner. So this may be acting commissioner O'Donnell's last news release, but you know, he says this in it. So he got himself in the issues and he notes that while this is a legitimate credit that's provided financial lifeline to millions of businesses, there continue to be promoters who aggressively mislead people and businesses into thinking they can claim these credits. I would say, yeah, that's basically true. Anyone who is considering claiming this credit needs to carefully review the guidelines. And note, you cannot just blindly rely, even the taxpayer cannot blindly rely on the assertions of the promoter who is going to be receiving a rather significant contingent fee in many cases. So there is a obvious bias there to push a over-the-top, very aggressive claim on the theory that the IRS can't examine all of these. Therefore, you know, they're basically likely to set the client up for a problem if the client becomes the one who is unlucky enough to actually get the IRS exam. And what I found really interesting was the line that says if the tax professional they're using raises questions about the accuracy of the employer retention credit claim, people should listen to their advice. This is the IRS going on the record saying if you've got a promoter telling you you qualify for this credit and you're a long professional telling you don't, your longtime professional is probably the one that's right. Now, I would say that's not absolutely true. There are definitely cases where people qualify for the credit. I have heard some professionals believe that you absolutely have to have the revenue drop of 20 percent, 50 percent. And that's clearly not the case. But I will say that if that's not the way you're getting in, it is very, very, very difficult unless you are in certain industries where the IRS has been very liberal in determining what qualifies as a partial suspension of the business. Restaurants being the most obvious that has some of the, shall I say, most generous guidance found in the IRS notices on this topic. So it's pretty easy to qualify a restaurant, even if they were able to make up all of their loss in dine-in work with takeout and uh, drive-through. Yeah, they still appear to qualify, which is weird, but okay. I mean, the You know, the examples clearly come down and don't worry about whether or not the income from drive through took over for this stuff. For everybody else, though, you do worry about that very much. If they have an alternative, they got it. They can, the uh, commissioner's statement concludes with the IRS is actively auditing, conducting criminal investigations related to these false claims. People need to think twice before claiming this. That's pretty harsh wording from the service regarding this area. And that's the sort of thing that if you're having trouble with your clients, you may want to point them to this and say, this is your problem because gang, you know, think about this for a second. That promoter is going to charge you whatever it may be, 30, 40% of the claim of what you're going to receive. They have every incentive in the world to claim way more than you qualify for, hoping the IRS just pays it out. And then their audit guarantee may turn out to be not worth much. As I tell people, if they're not around, if they've gone under, if the IRS got onto this one, let's say we have a very aggressive promoter and the IRS, binds that promoter and starts going after all of their clients, my guess is the audit protection's probably not going to be able to work because they're just going to be nailed with so many cases in front of them that even if that audit protection was not just a paper, you know, kind of a claim was easy to make on paper, uh, you just have to wonder, could they possibly do it? Or are they going to be kind of like, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, who had all their depositors show up at once, you know, now you've got all your customers showing up at once, all of which need audit representation for the IRS. And yeah, things don't look so good. So be aware of that. The IRS has been warning about this scheme since last fall, but there continue to be attempts to claim the ERC during the 2023 filing season. Tax professionals note they continue to be pressured by people wanting to claim credits improperly that's really important to remember. Everybody out there, everybody listening to this, I'm sure has had a client who's called them and absolutely wants them to assist in preparing a credit claim that simply doesn't fly, or that appears to be wildly aggressive, but they're being told it will work no problem whatsoever. So as we said, this is where they tell you the IRS Office of Special Responsibility is working on additional guidance for the tax professional community to be available in the near future. And, you know, basically what the IRS has said is um, they again remind people illegal promotions, they strongly suggest, you'll see this again in guidance to tax tax professionals, uh, report suspected abusive tax promotions of preparers using Form 14242. They're kind of asking you to turn that in. Now, this near future guidance turned out to be basically the same day, but it was interestingly issued in what's normally received as an email. Uh, if you subscribe to the Office of Professional Responsibilities, Alerts Service, an alert from the Office of Responsibility, OPR, issue number 2023-02, issued again March 7th, entitled Professional Responsibility Employee Retention Act, that's where we start seeing some of the guidance. Now, this guidance looks at, essentially, you know, what exactly is your requirements under Circular 230. Now, I'm a little interested here because they seem to be ignoring to some extent or just not paying attention uh, to their loss in Ridgely versus Lou that seemed to suggest that the IRS, you know, OPR did not have the direct authority to regulate preparation. Um, But nevertheless, even if you take that into account, virtually everything they talk about in this guidance, if you're a CPA and Ridgely versus Lou involved the CPA, it probably applies to attorneys. With EAs, it gets more interesting because there the IRS has the right to set requirements for who can basically who's not a CPA or an attorney who have state-based licensing, but who is a CPA, but who essentially is otherwise, which means enrolled agents could practice for them. So a lot of people I think still believe, and I probably lean toward the belief that for EAs, these preparation provisions would still apply. But you know, if you're a CPA, don't, don't start getting smug about this. Because almost everything that's in here is word for word or you know has a very similar provision in the statements on standards for tax services. So I would still be very leery about doing this. And the other problem is the fact that the OPR and the Circ 230, you know, certainly indicates this is what is expected of a CPA. Yes, OPR may not be able to go after easily, but I guarantee you in civil litigation that will be pointed to as, look, OPR standard said you should have done this. The SSTS has said you should have done this, but you simply didn't do this. We think that is something that a person hiring a CPA, you know, essentially should be able to assume that they're going to get when they hire them for tax practice work. And that's how you're going to set up the litigation against a CPA. Now, they begin by discussing your requirements for diligence as to accuracy. This seems more directed at the promoters, or though actually going out and talking to clients about qualifying for this. And using what I found way too often to be the, you know, the promoter gives this really broad discussion about, you know, vaguely discussing about, you know, restrictions and anything COVID-related and anything vaguely government-related and vaguely COVID-related qualifies as a suspension of your business. And then they just let the client say, oh, yeah, I had that, which I think is malpractice in the basics. In essence, clients are not trained to make that call. Now, they tell us that Section 10.22 of Circular 230 requires practitioner to exercise due diligence in preparing and filing returns or other documents on a client's behalf with the IRS and ensuring the correctness of their written or oral representations to clients in the IRS. Practitioners who prepare income, employment, or tax returns for clients have a duty of due diligence to inquire of their clients with sufficient detail to ascertain the information necessary to determine the client's eligibility for this credit and to claim the proper amount of the credit on the client's return. Now, for purposes of due diligence, generally, you are allowed, and this is identical to the Statements on Standards for Tax Services, you're allowed to rely in good faith without verification on information from the client. And this is why I think a lot of people who are doing very aggressive ERC work have tried to lean on and saying, well, you know, we, we described it and they told us they had a suspension. It's like, That's not really something you can get from the client. The client can tell you what exactly happened, but they're not trained to apply their facts to the law. And yet I see way too often that third parties have just kind of let the client say, do you qualify? Yeah, oh, good. Then we're filling it in. And that's kind of issue. Good faith reliance as they continue on the OPR guidance, however, kind of place practitioner will make reasonable inquiries for from eligibility for the ERC and determine the correct amount of the credit. You can accept the client's responses at face value if it is reasonable. I will tell you with the number of people, number of courses I gave, the number of questions I had from trained tax professionals regarding nuances of the employee retention credit, I don't see any way it's reasonable for 99.99% of your clients to make the call on whether they had a partial suspension. They need to let you know what happened. You need to get the details, and then you can figure out if they had a partial suspension. As it goes on to note, a practitioner may not ignore the implications of information, right? Uh, the practitioner knows or has received from the client. If the information of the client appears to be incorrect, incomplete, or inconsistent with other facts, the practitioner knows. The practitioner cannot simply accept the client's information, but must make further inquiries of the client to reconcile the incomplete, incorrect, or inconsistent facts. My guess is, in most cases, we're gonna be looking at this called incomplete facts. If the client just tells you they qualify, they've given you no facts. I would say it is clearly unreasonable to rely on the client to make that conclusion. You know, do you rely on the client to make the conclusion about whether a lawsuit award they received was taxable or not? You say, Hey, you know, some lawsuits awards are taxable. Some aren't. Was yours taxable? And they'll say, Oh, well, no. Right. Ah, no, it wouldn't be taxable. It's like they have no basis to make that call. And I think the same thing is true about basis for whether they were partially suspended. They have no basis to make that call because it's not just partial suspension, but it has to be partial suspension for the appropriate type of government order. And it needs to be an order, not a suggestion. I was talking with a with a you know with a basically a taxpayer who was being been approached on this and that was seriously what they were you know kind of thinking that well there were these recommendations that you know if somebody came down with covid that they should stay home for two weeks and i said okay let's go back that said recommendation did anybody was there anybody who could have penalized you for not doing that because of a specific order they adopted due to COVID? it was recommended. You know, it's recommended you eat all the proper foods every day. It's recommended you get so much exercise every day. It's recommended all that stuff. None of that constitutes, though, a restriction on your business. Well, my employees need to get the proper amount of exercise, right? Because the government says they should get this much exercise during the day. So obviously my business is restricted because... No, that's not how it works. Right? This is where the problem comes. Okay. If you cannot reasonably conclude, and by the way, the emphasis here was in the uh, OPR email, if the if you cannot reasonably conclude, consistent with the standards discussed in the guidance, that the client is or was eligible to claim the ERC, the taxpayer should not prepare an original or amended return that claims or perpetuates a potential improper credit. Now, some people are getting very concerned about that perpetuate statement. Does that mean that if you amend the return? to remove the deduction for the ERC credit from wages which has to be done if you're claiming the credit you know is that perpetuating i think that would be a real stretch for OPR to carry but i don't know it'd be a stretch for a client in litigation who may be facing huge penalties from the IRS you know for having not for having gotten this employer retention credit and not having properly qualified for it i definitely see how they may end up being able to claim wait the fact that you agreed to amend the return suggests to me that you approve the credit claim and you know had you blocked at that or you told me you weren't going to work with me anymore which by the way you probably should seriously consider the client will not accept your advice on this issue that's a huge red flag and I think you need to be very very careful about working with a client when you see a red flag like that where first thing is it tells you they don't trust your they don't trust your professional you know your professional abilities. Secondly, it, you know, if they do trust them, it's probably even worse because, oh, well, they know they're probably wrong, but everything's okay as long as you don't get caught. And that same mentality will say that when they do get caught and the IRS is penalizing them, well, I can just tell them the CPA told me it was okay and get them to go after the CPA. And, you know, get them to go after those things, get my penalties, waves, et cetera, you know, just stick them on the CPA. And again, if everything's okay, as long as you don't get caught, you know, if they're not caught in the lie, if you can't prove they're lying, then it's okay, right? You do not want a client who thinks that way. Bottom line, that's your problem. Now, it also looks at the standards for tax returns and other documents when you're preparing them, as specifically tells everybody, this again is aim promoters, that you do have a requirement to warn clients about penalties. Now, this would also be true if you're preparing the 941X. Let's say the, the consultant did the study, but as many of them will do now because they do not want their name signed as a preparer on anything, they say, oh, well, yeah, yeah but we, we, we're not allowed to prepare the uh, actual form. It's like, really, you're not? Why not? You know, what exactly blocks you? Uh, I don't know if they ever explain that. I mean, I can think theoretically, but anything that blocks them should block you, or you know, or if the problem is they're getting a contingent fee, well, they're still getting a contingent fee, and they're still effectively a preparer. So none of this stops any of those problems. So as I said, you can be a preparer without signing the return, but they know if they don't sign the return, the IRS is going to have a tougher time tracing things back to them. They'll just go after the 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 poor the poor you know. Mark that they got to sign the return. Somebody who was dumb enough to go along with it. There's the way they'll look at it, right? And also talks about dealing with, if you become aware the client has filed an, an excessive ERC credit. Now, the first thing is, if you do prepare the return and you're preparing the credit and the client is taking an aggressive ERC position, it's not necessarily wrong. I mean, there are positions that could be aggressive, but not abusive right? Again, remember our standards we have in that area. So if you have a reasonable basis, that's fine. But if you don't have something with substantial authority, and I think if you're not, if you're taking position contrary to the notices, then I don't think you have substantial authority. I think you've got some serious problems there, and I think the client needs to know about it. And this tells you the client needs to be warned about those things, plus the fact they could escape penalties by disclosing this issue, right? Adequate disclosure of the position should be attached with the return. So you should be noting that, the client should be warned about that. You know, the IRS might assert assert an accuracy-related penalty on this position, you know, unless, you know, because I'm not, you know, I don't think there's enough here to say you have substantial authority. Maybe I'm okay with reasonable basis because your case is, eh, it's there, and okay, maybe. Uh, you know, but it's got to be better than just well. It's got it's got to be way more than just well. You won't be examined on it. It's got to really be something that you're going to point to at least some support in. So okay, you've got that, but you still got to warn about the need to disclose, you know, and the penalties. And this is where especially if you if you say oh I'll do the nine forty one x you agree to do that because the promoter doesn't want to, and you prepare that for the client to get the refund. Um, you're still in this case of now having to warn them about the the responsibility to you know put the disclosure on the return to escape penalties and you definitely get in trouble if you don't do that and again i don't think the trouble is mainly from the irs i think the trouble is going to be in civil litigation where the client's going to use that if things go badly and this client gets examined well this is where we go in the context of the ERC, the notice continues that a asking as preparer or advisor to a client should determine a client has previously obtained and claimed an excessive ERC. So you're doing their return this year. You discover that they have claimed the ERC when obviously they don't qualify, right? They're vaguely talking about the fact, well, I knew one case, I think I mentioned it before here, of a church that was told they qualified here in Phoenix. And the CPA started asking the promote, you know, basically the consultant, quote unquote, about how. Oh well, they had to shut down. And she said, "No, Arizona never required a church to shut down or host virtually." Okay, well, they were required to mask. Okay, well, first realize that claiming masking is a partial shutdown is at variance with the notice. But ignoring that entirely, there's a big problem here. The state of Arizona and all localities here never required you to wear masks in a church. Okay, well, well, people just, you know, well, well but the church required them, which now gets to the weird thing, well, that's not a government entity to begin with. But number two, um, No, this church never did require that anyway. So as you'll find out, you can definitely discover somebody's claimed an ERC. Now, in this case, it wasn't claimed. Uh, They basically, and they were able to get back the fee. They charged an upfront fee plus a a commission, which would be kind of interesting. They did finally get the upfront fee back after squawking loud enough when the CPA pointed out all these problems. but this is one of your requirements if you're involved in that now again as a best practice in addition to being responsible if you're actually involved in the general preparing of the thing as a best practice this means and when it says this this is going to be a problem in civil cases probably the practitioner should consider advising the client of the option of filing a meta return now you do not have to prepare the amended return you know erc claim unless asked by the client and then only to feel competent to do so Now, if the client refuses to amend the ERC, again, be careful here. Like I say, they either think you're incompetent, which you don't want that client, or they know you're right, or they strongly suspect you're right. But again, nothing's wrong if I don't get caught. And that includes lying about what your CPA told you to get out of some penalties from the IRS. So, yeah, be aware of that. Uh, also notes issues claiming the practitioner relied on the advice of the promoter. I've heard some people try to do this. Well, I don't really know anything about the ERC, but the promoter said it's fine, so I'm not gonna get any trouble if I prepare the 941X, I'm just relying on another professional. Well, you got a problem there. While 10.3783 of Cirque 230 allows practitioner in their advice to a client to rely on advice of others, it's only if the reliance is reasonable under all facts and circumstances, including where the other advisor had a conflict of interest within the meaning of section 10.29. Thus, if if the other advisor who may have advised clients claim the ERC has a conflict because of the amount or character of the fee the advisor charged for the advice at the time, the practitioner's reliance on that advice may not be reasonable. I would say it's not may not, it's not. If the practitioner, if the party is charging a large contingent fee, that obviously biases, okay? Now the client's got a problem here too. We go back to the old neonatology case, uh, where the court said, nah, you can't rely on the promoter who told you you could do this this uh, particular structure they were doing in neonatology. They're saying you should have known, right? You know, the, the promoter was only gonna get paid if you did this. And, you know, so therefore they had a vested interest telling you it was great and go do it. Uh, this is the same thing. This promoter who is going to be paid on this large contingent fee is only going to get paid if you do it, they're going to get paid way more if you claim way more. So that's automatically a conflict of interest that their advice, you know, their interest is to advise as high a number as possible, rather than to advise the client of the proper number. So, because of that, you've got it as out CPA. Even the clients get hung on this. You can imagine a CPA, EA, or attorney who just totally ignores everything and just says, "Ah, yeah, see that that guy over there, uh, you know that, that that CPA over there, that attorney over there said this is fine." No, not not going to work. That's not reasonable reliance on advice. Next up, the IRS notice 2022-23 granted guidance on erroneous requirement distribution notices due to the SECURE Act changes late in 2022. As I said, notice 2022-23 issued again on March 7th. A lot of work on March 7th. Now, the SECURE 2.0 Act 2022 again changed the required beginning date and again this passed late in 2022. A lot of financial institutions were already notifying those who attained age 72 in 2023 and need to take RMDs by April 1st of 24, which it turns out they're not required to do. Or they simply couldn't make changes in time before they're you know, going to be putting out forms 5498 that have this information on it. And they simply didn't have the time to get the computer programs updated. And they did something very similar to this when we passed the original secure. I went from 70 and a half to 70 to 72, we had the similar type of relief kicked out by the IRS. This is being kicked out here as well. Remember now we're going up to, you know, we're gonna keep our age increasing here for a while. Gonna go up to 73, so nobody's gonna qualify this year. As long as they notify those people that we're turning 72 this year about the error of the notice by April 28th of this year, they will not be considered to have issued erroneous notices. The IRS is not gonna be sending any penalties, okay? And what they say there is, again, this is basically the notice in question. Uh, IRS who attained a 72-2023, the RMD statement on notice 2002-27 should not be sent. And the 2022 154 should not include a check in the box, in box 11, or an entry on box 12A or 12B. And obviously, if you're a financial institution, you can make that happen, make that happen. That'll be the easiest. You don't have to then do anything else. However, in recognition of the short amount of time, the financial institutions have had to change their systems. First, in the RMD statement, since the enactment of the Secure 2.0 Act, relief is being provided with respect to this reporting. Under this relief, the Internal Revenue Service will not consider an RMD statement provided to an IRA owner, will attain age 72 in 2023 to have been provided incorrectly, if the owner is notified by the financial institution no later than April 28th that no RMD is actually required for this year. Okay, now let's go to our, for, to our court challenge, to our court change. Actually, this is the one. We talked about Supreme Court last week. This is an interesting one. CBU Trading. Case number 20-72416, or Court Appeals, on March the 10th. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because, yes, we talked about this exact case in May of 2022. That case found that a partnership that was contacted by the IRS, first by an agent who said, we don't have a record of your partnership return. And they and they sent they sent them a copy of the return, and they sent them a copy of the certified mail receipt. They said, you know, prove they did timely file the twenty one return. And then, you know, a number of years later, again, even more years down the line, in two thousand seven, they had an attorney for the IRS who was working the then running exam, uh, which, by the way, theoretically would have been past the uh, date to assess tax if it had filed in 2001 by a long margin, they, they sent that person, again, a copy of the return. And again, in the transmittal letter with it, they said it was a copy of the return they'd filed. Well, they said, look, you know that definitely the IRS had this information, so the statute started when they gave the return to the first agent. Now, the problem was, as the minority opinion, or basically the dissenting opinion said in the case, was that they came to this conclusion by deciding that while yes, the regulation very clearly states, in this case, this partnership had to file its return with the Ogden Service Center, that's required. And you don't have valid return of the regs unless you did that. But they said, but the way the regs are written, that only applies to a timely filed return. So once it was late, you didn't have to give it to, you didn't have to send it there, you give it to basically anybody at the IRS. And the way the opinion was written, it essentially said anybody at the IRS. And the dissenting opinion said that that was kind of wrong. You know, said no, it says that this seems to be driven by the result they wanted. And we understand why the result, because it seems kind of odd. And let's be honest, it doesn't seem terribly fair that the service could, you know, have said, hey, we don't think you filed the return. They were sent a copy of that return in response to that request, you know, in, you know, basically, you know, and I think it was 2005. Yeah, 2005. And then in 2007, they again sent a copy of that return because the attorney couldn't find the return. And they sent the copy of that to the IRS attorney. It's like, I understand why you might think when 2010 rolls around, they finally go and try to do a final partnership administrative adjustment that, wait, you know, this isn't fair for them to do this. They've clearly known about this for a long time. But as the dissenting judge pointed out, it's like, yeah, but in order to do that, you've managed to tear apart and say there's just simply no rules. It's, you know, all, you know, all anything goes once we get past the original due date. So filing a late return actually might be, you know, going ahead and paying the late filing penalty, you know, one month of that might actually be worthwhile because then you could give the return to a janitor cleaning the offices and you'd be fine. Now, obviously, they're never going to find that return. They tend to lose returns anyway. Now, they are talking about regulation 1.6031-1E1. And that regulation is procedure requirements, which are authorized by the law in place at that time. Because of BBA, the law in question got moved around a bit. We still have the same basic basic requirement, but it moved in BBA. So the actual code section is not quite the same code section that it was before the Bipartisan Budget Act. And this is a pre-BBA partnership. Issue case. And number one, they said, place for filing. The return of a partnership must be filed to the service center, prescribed and relevant IRS revenue procedure, publication, form, or instructions to the form. Okay. Now, right off, they never did send this return to Ogden. Now, while the case law has held that if you give it to an IRS agent and they forward it to Ogden, and by the way, the majority opinion in this case, which says, yeah, you got to do it that way points that out saying, you know, the case they relied upon, the agent in question had forwarded it to Ogden. And they point out one case for a late filed return, they, they said, and the, fi- the date that was streamed as filed was going to be the date that they actually saw the Ogden service center begin processing the return. They're saying, cause that that's the first piece of evidence that in fact, the return was provided to Ogden rather than just to the agent. Okay. But what the partners, what, what the other members, what the basically the two members of the panel that sided with the taxpayer in the original decision came up and said, yeah, yeah, but look, the second one, the term partnership must be filed on the fourth date prescribed by Section 672B. And they said, well, there it is. You You know, obviously, since they didn't file the second, right, once it's a late filed return, the first clause doesn't apply. I would say at best that is a very strained reading of this regulation. I would say extremely strained, Uh, but that's what they reach for to try to make this work. Now we'll discover there's a couple of other issues involved, but we'll get there. Okay. The taxpayer claimed they timely filed the return, they filed the return timely for the 2021 years. They filed it timely in 22. In July of 2005, again, if they filed it timely, by July of 2005, the statute would have been closed. The partnership, you know, the agent and the IRS agent for the partnership that they had no record of the return. So they asked for any copy retained and the proof of, you know, mailing the return in and they sent and the CPA in question, sent a copy of the return and they sent in a certified mail receipt. Now, when I read the original case, this is what got me like, how did that not work? Because a certified mail receipt is prima facie proof of timely filing of the return. So why did, why weren't they banging on this in the case later on? Because we discovered later on, they weren't. We do finally get an explanation for that better in this case as to why the certified mail receipt turned out to be not something they followed up, at least an implication as to why it wasn't what they followed up on. In July of 2007, so now two years later, while the parties were under exam, they faxed another copy to the IRS attorney indicating, and they indicate in the cover letter, this was a copy of the return. Now, note in neither case did they say to the IRS agent or the IRS employee, this is our return we are filing. And that's going to turn out to be important to the panel. Basically, not to the panel now, but to the N-bank group. I guess still with the Ninth Circuit, it's an banc panel as opposed to the entire court, but nevertheless. That's where it goes. So neither Irish employer forwarded the copy of the return to Ogden for processing. And it makes sense because in this case, they appeared to be still sticking to their guns, that the return had been timely filed. So it had been timely filed. There's no need to file another one. In fact, presumably they might have felt that if they said treat this as filed, uh, that that was like conceding they hadn't originally filed the return. So they were still apparently fighting on that issue about the original return. We don't know when they get the certified mail. We know they were still pushing it in July of 2005. 2007, they never said, but they didn't say it was a copy of the return. Uh didn't say a copy of the return that had previously been filed with your agent in 2005. So it's not clear in either case they asked the IRS employee to forward the return to Ogden. Okay. In October 2010, they issued the final partial administrative adjustment. Taxpayer argued as well past sexual limitation dates, which, by the way, it would be if they had filed the return in two, uh, 2002, timely. It would be late if the return is deemed filed when they gave it to the agent in 2005, because that would have been three years, so 2008. And even because it was October 2010, they were three years past the 2007 date when it was given to the attorney. Now, I don't really see how July 2007 would ever become the relevant date. If there's a requirement for the IRS employees to treat this as a filing date, then I, I think, you know, I don't see how we get to 2007, but even if you went there, they clearly would be past the date. So the question really becomes, was this return filed or was it still not filed as of October 10th? And that's where the court came down a little different. The full panel held that the regulation applied to all returns, regardless of whether they were timely filed. So E1 that talks about you have to give it to the proper service center. In this case, for this taxpayer, it was Ogden, Utah. That requirement is still there. You know you have to do it. And even if you're filing a late return, the return is not filed till it gets to Ogden. Now they note the case law says that if the if you do file it in the wrong place. But it gets forwarded to Ogden. Once it's forwarded to Ogden, then that counts as filing, and that's going to turn out to be kind of a big issue when we get in here. And they said as well, note: first thing is they said the employees are under no obligation to forward it to Ogden. Uh, you know, the IRM does suggest that, and certainly people have had agents tell them, "Oh, just give me the return, right? Don't 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 mail it into Ogden now. Just give it to me." I would be very careful about that, right? I Again, this wasn't the facts asserted here. Nobody asserted that either time they told them this is our filing. And that might get a different result in a case like this. But this case, I get a little worried about the other direction. It's like, well, you know, you tell me to do this. But according to View, if I don't make sure it gets to Ogden, uh, you know, it doesn't count. And there's no way to make sure, there's no way to prove it gets to Ogden except certified mail, uh, you know, and I mail it in myself. So while I'll give you a copy of what I'm going to give to Ogden, I'm going to still file with Ogden. Right? That, that, that'd that be the background or whatever service center you're talking about. Okay. Right. Uh, and again, the fact they didn't indicate either time it was providing a copy, it was treating it as a filing event. In both cases, they suggested the re- their position was return had already been filed. As such... Right, there was nothing here to go on with. Now, like I said, this indicates a risk. You only provide the return to the agent if the IRS is stating it wasn't filed. I think you need to be concerned about that. Unless the IRS comes out with some clarifications in C I know what the internal Revenue Manual says. I know what other documents said. I know agents have asked for them for years, but you know, in any event, you know, that's a problem. Uh, you know, and like I said, the fact the agent tells you. It's okay, just give it to me. I'd be leery. I would actually point out to Seaview. Now, you know, now as I said, would it have been different had Seaview actually been told by the agent they would go ahead and file it with Ogden, or had Seaview asked for this to be treated as filing? Might have been a different result. So we don't know, and I think that's concern, but until that is actually addressed as to whether if an agent's assurance that the return would be filed, you know, they would forward it to Ogden is enough to count as the filing time, that's a whole different problem. And right now, I would not assume that one's true. Right. Now, let's go back to that certified mail, though. That again, certified mail would end this. If there was a certified mail receipt, that was that was used to file the return in you know March of 2002. Uh, that would have been March or April. I think it would still have been April then, right? I forget how long ago we changed the filing date for partnerships. But in any event, if that went in with it on the filing date, then you know th- this was all over. You know it's clear the return was filed on time. It's clear that tough luck guys, you just didn't get it out on time. You know you just didn't process it. Well, here's the catch and what they tell us in this set of facts. Finally, this is the first time in the three opinions have actually found out what happened to this thing. So Seaview account complied with this request in October, September 2005, facts and copies 2001, Form 1065, the Revenue Agents Office in South Dakota, along with the certified mail receipt for an envelope that had been mailed to Ogden Service Center in July of 2002. Well, apparently timely, but not too timely anyway. So July of 2002, Seaview initially claimed that this included a 2001 parts return in that envelope. But here's the catch, that envelope contained the tax return of another relayed entity. And Seaview conceded on appeal that it could not prove the IRS received its 2001 return as part of the mailing. What I suggest happened here most likely was, they came back, here's our certified mail receipt. IRS said, aha, uh-huh, here it is, we've got an envelope that came in with, and here's what was in it. Um, you know." And they look and it's not, it's not the right entity. Okay, now that probably would send them back to ask a couple of questions. First thing is, I suspect they weren't in the business of sending in multiple empty returns in the same envelope, because that would seem a little dangerous uh, on the very basis that the IRS might not process all the returns. So, you know, if you're doing to certified mail to get proof of mailing, I'd like to have separately for each return. Thank you. But number two, I suspect that they didn't normally file multiple in the same envelope and they went back and checked their files and discovered that oh wait we've got the same certified mail receipt for both of these and yet we don't mail in things in the same envelope so uh-oh <laughs> because if you try to claim oh you're wrong about that with well, the other partnership return was in there instead of the one you're claiming then they're just going to come back and ask about the other return you know and how you know what, what's with that one so yeah, I have a feeling they—they discovered that they pushed forward on the certified mail for the returning question. They were basically committing perjury, most likely, and certainly on exam, the service would ask and would go through the history of the—you know—what they have, envelopes they have. I suspect they have a long history that this part, these partnerships, you know, the related partnerships have always filed in separate envelopes. They had never filed together in a group. And that would be the case. You'd ask them, you know, the client claims it was all filed in one envelope. Well, then they're going to ask you in the case, oh, is that normal? When was the last time you did it? Did you do it this year, et cetera? And the IRS is going to be able to impeach that by showing separate certified mail envelopes for the different entities. So as I say, I think that explains the certified mail. Uh, So yeah, make sure that you got it. It's not that, you know, the problem is when you show the certified mail receipt, the burden goes back to the IRS to prove it was in an envelope. Once they offer proof of that, now you've got your burden back on you to prove I mean, why Zaris wrong about what's in that envelope. And they've discovered they probably couldn't do it. Now, finally, Private Letter ruling 2023-31001 came out on March 10th. This is, again, how to blow your S election. And this one deals with a limited liability company, which, look, you can use limited liability company as your S corporation uh, structure. It is done a lot here in Arizona due to the fact that you have less disclosure about ownership going forward. If you use a single member LLC, we use an LLC instead of a corporation. Corporations in Arizona have to file reports every year telling us anybody who has more than 20% ownership interest. LLCs do not. So the paranoid like to use LLCs for that purpose. Uh, that, that's kind of where they go which is going to be loads of fun when we get to the Corporate Transparency Act reporting this year. So that'll be fun for that group. Um, but after forming a member LLC and electing S-status, and by the way, C member LLC, the S-election is going to be valid under the one class of stock rule automatically because only one shareholder. They obviously are going to get everything distributed liquidation and everything distributed annually. You know, that that's where it's all going. They're the only ones with the right to it. So there's no problem. But then this person admitted two more individuals and at the same time modified the operating agreement. Now, the real problem here is they added provisions that specially allocated different types of income and provided the distribution to be under 704B capital accounts that would be related computed using those allocations. And yeah, that's a big problem because what you violate is the one class of stock rule right let's talk about the one class of stock so we're going to talk about this so the information they submitted states that this is llc organized under the laws of state whatever on date one so the first date on date one until date three only one individual had an interest in the entity and as i said at that point it's only going to have one class of stock outstanding i know it doesn't have any stock but we pretend on date three two individuals acquired interest in x x made a timely election to be an s corporation effective date two which was after date one and before date three. So we made an election while we're still one person. Because by the way, there's a real question you make that election when you have multiple owners and you've got the screwed up agreement. I would say you got a partnership in that scenario. But when you do it this way, you have a C corporation, which probably is not optimal. Because your corporate election is valid because you made a valid S election. But when your S election gets blown, that doesn't remove the corporate. The corporate election is still stuck for the LLC, and you have to go through a full loan liquidation with double taxation in order to get that undone, which probably is not good. On date three, the members of X entered into an agreement. Okay, so basically, when they came in, you're going to provide different types of profits and loss to be allocated in different percentages other than proportionally, including allocations based on the outstanding negative capital account balances. You're going to provide that with respect to certain types of transactions. Distribution will be paid to members. It acquires their respective positive capital account balances as adjusted pursuant to send them for the code. And then it will be paid pursuant to differing percentages. This is boilerplate partnership style language appears to have gotten in here again. Which is a huge problem. Now if they really did try to special allocate income, it does suggest that. It suggests we also have went a step beyond boilerplate and actually had somebody write special allocations. That's the one point where I began thinking that there might have been an attorney involved in this thing, which then is even a bigger problem. Like, well, you know, counsel didn't know about this. As they conclude here, thus shares of stock of the corporation could confer non-identical rights to distribution liquidation proceeds. And the question here is not whether it did, whether anybody ever got a disproportionate distribution. The question is whether it could, right? Well, we talked about the flip side of that before. If your document doesn't allow for the distributions, but they make them, that actually is not a termination event unless they go back and agree, now, oh, forget about it. We're not going to worry about that. We're going to let everybody keep the numbers. We're going to go ahead and give you twice as much as you should get. If they have that agreement, then they do have two classes of stock. But if they just foul up and get the distributions wrong and the parties have the legal right to get reimbursed, then generally that's not going to be a termination event. Now the regulation for one class of stock is found at regulation 1.1361-1L1. And it says a corporation has one class of stock does not qualify as a small business corporation. Can't make it as election. Okay. The corporation is treated as only having one class of stock if stock of stock, if all outstanding shares of stock of corporation, confer identical rights to distribution liquidation. Differences in voting rights are not a problem. Right, remember that, but it's got to have identical rights to distribution liquidation proceeds on a pro rata basis. You cannot get differing amounts or percentage of distributions in different scenarios for different members, or you've got a problem, right? Basically you don't have an S corporation. Like I said, if you make this election when you have multiple shareholders or multiple LLC members and you make this election with this language in here, I would say you got a partnership, most likely, because the reg specifically says that the check the box regulation is only made by filing the 20 is only made by filing the S election. if you're eligible to be an S corporation. So I'd say, well, if you don't, then you're back to default. If you didn't file the specific election to be a corporation, I don't know if the IRS will agree always with that. And agents tend to get confused about that, but that would be my take. But again, if you have a single member LLC and you elect, that thing's going to be an S corporation. And I've had too many CPAs who've come to me thinking, well, you know, well, okay, well, if we if we uncheck the box, check on additional people here, then we can just become a partnership. No, no, you can't become a partnership, with no tax consequence. That specifically filed the 8332 or eighty-eight thirty-two in order to unelect your S, your corporate status, and you have to go through a deemed liquidation, which is going to have a taxable distribution, which, again, is probably not what you want in that case. Now, they did discover the problem. They revised the agreement to meet the requirements. But the IRS, again, provided relief as they do in these, but only after a private loan was requested, paid for, and granted. And as I've noted, Don't tell me again, I've done this for 30 years, the IRS has never looked at this, I can't believe why you're talking about it. You know, nobody ever says this, yes they do. Why do we have all these PLRs? We have them because due diligence teams, as I mentioned. If you're a client, if somebody's coming to acquire a client, especially if they're a public company, they're going to send a due diligence team. Diligence team, public companies do not take on any risk whatsoever that they aren't responsible for. And you will be told to get this fixed or the purchase is off. And that's how these rulings tend to happen. I agree. I've never seen the IRS actually do this. I've never seen the IRS on exam go down this path. But that's not the risk. That's not why. Because, you don't believe me, just go look through private letter ruling releases for the, you know, basically go back for like over the past number of years, decades. Uh, PLR releases ever since the IRS got the right to grant inadvertent election relief. And look at how many of these letter rulings are issued. You know, people aren't getting letter rulings for things that, you know, uh, other things out there that they might be wrong, you know, but they're not going to ask for relief on this. Uh, And yeah, the IRS isn't examining. This is being asked for not because the IRS, but because of those third parties. I look at it. Uh, Like I said, it's kind of interesting to consider how this could have happened. If counsel was involved, how did it never get noticed that we had a blown s election? how did it never get noticed? And part of that is because I've run into even some attorneys who just don't understand the one class of stock rule or make a flippant statement, which I've said attorneys do this to me on a couple of occasions on a couple of things. Just recently on an unrelated topic, I had an attorney make a flippant statement, which is like, you have no clue what the rule is there. You're just assuming that, but this is not your area of practice. It was a non-tax attorney who is making a rather flippant statement about what responsibilities were and weren't. And it's like, yeah, this isn't really your specialty area. And um, yeah, kind, kind of our problem. But same difference here, assuming this. Yeah, the one class of stock rules a problem is to say, I have no attorneys who are very good at drafting agreements that do this. And you know they do it because in Arizona, they got clients that want it. And I know somebody's going to say that's dumb. I don't know why you'd ever use an LLC or just asking for trouble. Look, it is possible to do. The client wants to do it, it's not illegal. Fine. But you got to make very sure they understand it's going to cost some more because they need competent counsel who knows how to do this. And that counsel is going to charge. That's simply the way it works. Well, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of March the 13th, 2022, or 2023, get the right year in there. Current Federal Tax Developments is brought to you each week by your state society CPAs capital and capital financial education. Uh, I am, you know, like I said, I keep my eye on the discussion boards on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington. Also, if there's something posted on Idaho's discussion boards, I will look in there from time to time. So if you're with any of those state society members there, you can post there. Otherwise, uh, look forward to talking to you guys next week, see what else happens in the way of taxes, see if we have more more things of interest. You know, we'll see we had, you know, we had the bar case overturned Supreme court the week before. We have View swap this week. Who knows what the courts come up with? But otherwise, we will see you next week for more current federal tax development.